Turning Tides is an Antics Entertainment affiliate. You can find us on social media at The Turning Tides Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and at Turning Tides Pod on Twitter. For more information, or if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, please contact us at theturningtidespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Warning, this episode of Turning Tides contains graphic descriptions of violence, torture, sexual assault, racism, and murder. As the guns fell silent on the most devastating war in American history, a new war was only just beginning. In the wreckage that was the American South, the conquering Union general, William Tecumseh Sherman, had promised land in Georgia's fertile river valleys to tens of thousands of formerly enslaved peoples. This new era of Reconstruction was supposed to bring about the end of the southern cabal of autocratic landowners and businessmen. President Abraham Lincoln was determined to help see this promise through. He intended on giving voting rights to black people who fought for the Union. During the announcement of his plans, a young actor named John Wilkes Booth became so incensed that he decided he would kill the president. He made good on his promise at Ford Theater. This left Andrew Johnson in charge of the United States, which was in such serious need of leadership. With Johnson in charge, any changes which had been previously proposed were put on a pause throughout the country. Andrew Johnson was considered a reformer at first, but it soon became clear that he had no intention of attempting to fix the seriously backward state in which America had put itself. The northern factory worker and farmhand cared little about emancipation. Many held racist beliefs. The few who didn't found themselves ostracized from quote-unquote polite society. Across the country, black codes rose to prominence, these codes segregated black and white people in all areas of public and private life. As early as the 1870s, there was a black governor of Louisiana, but now it was nearly impossible to vote if you were a person of color. This was due to the corrupt mismanagement which took place under Ulysses S. Grant. His cohorts stole millions causing the Republican Party to lose popularity across the country. Reconstruction died when the shadily elected Rutherford B. Hayes took office. Hate groups like the Ku Klux Klan harassed and murdered black people on a near daily basis. Their terror tactics ranged from intimidation and vandalism to the murder of children and prominent black organizers. Another association which was formed to bring a more public face to outright racism, was the White Citizens Alliance. This group of concerned citizens gained huge traction throughout the country. America existed this way, as an apartheid state, for decades. One of the many ways black people were oppressed was through racist policing. Once branded felons, they were unable to vote or find a job. This forced many ex-felons to make their income illegally, creating a vicious cycle of poverty, deprivation, and incarceration. As the Great Depression crippled the American economy, penitentiaries were seriously affected. Some of the largest of these penitentiaries were in the hinterlands of northern New York State. Following several furious uprisings in the prisons there, it was deemed necessary to construct a new state-of-the-art prison. This prison was to be built in Attica, New York. By the time Attica Penitentiary was completed in 1931, America was in the deepest doldrums of economic despair. 
due partially to the New Deal as well as countless other social programs initiated by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the American economy managed to stay afloat throughout the 1930s. With the rise of fascism and Nazism in Europe, America was now called upon to become an arsenal of democracy. When Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in 1941, America became a full-fledged belligerent in the conflict known as World War II. Over one million African Americans served the country in the battlefields of North Africa, France, and Italy. The treatment they endured was despicable. They found themselves given less priority than their POWs. Upon their return home, many were lynched, some while still in uniform. American officials sanctioned these horrific actions, all while claiming they were fighting against anti-Semitism and authoritarian rule. The fact was that living as a black person in America meant living in constant fear of your neighbor, your government, and your employer. Following World War II, membership in organizations like the NAACP, ACLU, and other anti-racist associations exploded. People would not simply accept the way things were anymore. As support for these movements and for racial equality continued to grow, conservatives across the country stiffened their resolve. They would resist integration, violently if necessary. As the white conservatives of both the North and the South saw it, their way of life was being threatened. They believed black people were the supreme other in society as they regurgitated the words and theories of the Klan and other racist organizations. They purported that black people were little more than animals who would never compare intellectually nor morally to a white person. As these sentiments drove racist violence to increase, black people became more committed to the cause of liberation. Nonviolent activists were at the forefront of this movement. Many would be murdered by the end, killed by cowards. Indeed, across the country, people were radicalizing. As America involved itself more and more with Vietnam, anti-war and black liberationist movements became increasingly prevalent. The groups involved in these movements ranged from religious institutions like the Nation of Islam to terrorist organizations like the Weathermen. As numerous civil rights bills passed under President Johnson, so too did thousands of American boys in the jungles and towns of Vietnam. This undeclared war infuriated many on the left, and the president only served one term because of it. Chosen to replace him in an incredibly hostile election cycle was Richard Milhouse Nixon. His southern strategy was a calculated move which allowed him to acquire the racist votes of the South while garnering support in northern states as well. In Attica, the prison had barely changed at all. The now 40-year-old institution was the main job provider for the otherwise sleepy town. There were few opportunities in the area. A single dog food factory was one of the only other outlets which employed Attica's citizens. Attica has a reputation for being a max security penitentiary. This claim is true. But many of the men housed in Attica did nothing to warrant this type of imprisonment. Many were serving short sentences for crimes like driving without a license, or for a parole violation. However, it's also true many rapists and murderers were housed there as well. The people who were housed in Attica were almost always from the big city, which was several hours away by bus. Many of the men must have been shell-shocked when they first saw the rolling hills and meandering creeks on the way to the prison. Very few had been outside the city. They were raised in an urban hellhole, neglected by officials. The majority of the over 2,200 prisoners crammed inside Attica were black, while about 10% were Puerto Rican. Attica was a vast labyrinth designed to punish and test the human spirit. Its massive grounds encompassed four separate cell blocks, which housed the many individuals in incredibly cramped cells. Surrounding these cell blocks were various administration and vocational buildings, such as the metal shop and hospital buildings. Surrounding the prison 
were imposing 30 feet tall concrete walls. These walls were decked with towers. Inside these towers were snipers, trained to kill any who got too close to either side of the wall without permission. Some cells in Attica had barred doors. Some were solid metal with just a small slit installed for the passage of food and drink. Some cells were excruciatingly hot in the summer, and some were bitterly cold in the winter. Inmates had very little time for outside recreation, and in the winter they dreaded outside time, as unrelenting below-freezing temperatures bedeviled the men at every turn. Additionally, prisoners had very few occupational options. They were placed in their job by prison officials. Behavioral history and race were the two main factors taken into consideration for job placement. Jobs in the mess hall or the administration buildings were the most sought after. These jobs were overwhelmingly given to white prisoners. Black and Puerto Rican prisoners were forced into so-called grading companies. These companies arbitrarily shoveled mountains of snow, day in and day out, for hours at a time. The salary for any of these jobs, even the best of the bunch, was incredibly poor. Prisoners made $2.90 a day, at most. Given that the officials gave prisoners barely any necessities, money was essential to the prisoners if they wanted to survive the cold winter months. Heather Ann Thompson says prisoners were given, quote, a thin gray coat, two gray work shirts, three pairs of gray pants, one pair of shoes, three pairs of underwear, six pairs of socks, and one comb. Every month, prisoners would receive one bar of soap and one roll of toilet paper, unquote. In order to acquire anything else, the prisoners had to pay or have their families bring them whatever they needed. That was easier said than done, since most families simply didn't have the money to take off work and then pay for a bus ticket and hotel room. The prisoners were allowed several magazines to which Attica subscribed, but any outside books or publications were subject to heavy censorship. If you were a Spanish speaker, your reading material was immediately thrown away, since the guards deemed anything they couldn't understand as subversive. This already miserable and depraved existence was only worsened by the staff at Attica. The main way correctional officers or COs, kept prisoners in line, was through keep lock, or solitary confinement. Prisoners were isolated for weeks, even months at a time. Their offenses were usually slight infractions, like talking or possessing contraband. Many prisoners refused to let their will be shaken, and they invented ways to slightly improve their lives. One ingenious invention was a device called a dropper, this generated warm water in the cold winter months through electrolysis. The civilian doctors who were employed by Attica were also incredibly incompetent. They stonewalled any attempt at outside medical intervention and delivered inadequate care to the many thousands entrusted to them. Big Blacksmith, a prisoner at Attica, lost nearly all of his teeth due to medical professionals refusing him dental care. As if this wasn't bad enough, decisions on parole were made based on the mood of the deciding official, and mail was regularly confiscated and censored by prison officials. The most disgraceful treatment was saved for inmates who were in common law relationships. Many partners were refused the right to see their significant other inside the walls, simply because they were not technically married. This, of course, disproportionately affected black and Puerto Rican people. The COs in charge of the prisoners were woefully unequipped to deal with the ever-expanding population. They received little pay, many had second jobs, and they received almost no training. Some believe that mutual respect with the prisoners in their care was the key to lessen tensions. Others supported ruthless authoritarianism. The lack of uniformity in care and rules only frustrated prisoners as well as prison officials. Sixty or seventy prisoners were expected to be controlled by a single CO. 
It was apparent to anyone with eyes that this would be a disaster. But prison officials refused to heed any warnings. In fact, they had more than warnings. Throughout 1970, the New York City jail system exploded in several different jail-wide rebellions. The worst case was at the Tombs, when prisoners captured a good portion of the jail before police put down the uprising. Fortunately, no one was killed, but it was a worrying sign for all parties of the increase in hostile tensions. Following the writing of the economic treatise The Anatomy of Laundry, written by prisoner Sam Melville, Attica's metal shop peacefully put down their tools in protest. In response, the ringleaders were thrown in keep lock by the angry prison officials. Back in Albany, Nelson D. Rockefeller was making drastic changes as New York's governor. He had survived the liberal waves of the late 60s, often by aligning himself with these same people. Now he would gamble on switching his tactics. Crime was proving to be a bipartisan issue. He wanted to get ahead of the curve by placing Russell G. Oswald in charge of the corrections apparatus in New York State. He was a reformer who genuinely wanted to change the prison system for the better. The increase in prison uprisings gave him pause, as he could see that politically active prisoners were becoming more prevalent. His anxieties about politically-minded prisoners seemed to be well-founded. West of Syracuse, there was the foreboding Auburn Penitentiary. The population here rose up and demanded serious reform. The prisoners captured hostages, and the black Muslim population formed a protective circle around them. The uprising sputtered and ended, but the men who started the rebellion found themselves transferred from the prison to Attica. These men were dubbed the Auburn Six. Their arrival inflamed the already agitated prison population. A letter of demands began circulating Attica State. It was uncovered during a search by COs. This letter of demands was signed by a group calling themselves the Attica Liberation Faction. The letter detailed the prisoners' request for a democratic means to address their grievances. These demands terrified Oswald, who believed they were the work of violent leftist agitators and black Muslims. Those who were deemed responsible for the demands were rounded up and thrown in solitary. Meanwhile, an event in a prison across the country would prove to have a profound effect on the happenings at Attica. A prisoner and political activist in Soldad Penitentiary by the name of George Jackson attempted to escape using a wig and a concealed pistol. In the aftermath, two guards and three prisoners, including Jackson, were dead. The story of his death seemed far-fetched, and many prisoners thought the deaths of Jackson and the other men were the result of reckless, trigger-happy prison guards. The entire population of Attica refused to have breakfast and sat silently in the mess hall the morning after the news broke. Additionally, the lawyers for the Auburn Six had successfully argued for their release into Gen Pop at Attica. This pissed off the prison authorities, as they saw it as the court hamstringing their ability to enforce their rules. Oswald recognized the need to show up personally at Attica in order to keep things calm. When he arrived, he met with several of the writers of the list of demands. All who were present were expecting him to stay and address the prisoners directly over the PA system. Instead, he left a pre-recorded message that promised nothing and didn't address any of the prisoners' needs or fears. He only claimed it would, quote, take time, unquote. The prisoners, who were asking for an extra shower a week, were done waiting. The next morning, September 8, 1971, tensions were at their highest yet. Many felt the smallest pretext could violently escalate things. In A Yard, a play fight between prisoners who were letting loose after being in keep lock for two weeks was interpreted by guards as a real fight. COs intervened and demanded an explanation from the man still at the scene. Prisoner Drewer was then asked to report the keep lock. This infuriated him and after attempting to walk away, he struck the CO who grabbed for him. Seeing the scene escalating, a prisoner stepped in to defend his friend from harassment. 
other CEOs soon responded and broke up the fight. For now, Drewer and Lamery were safe, but the guards would be back. That night, the guards came for the two men. Drewer was beaten senseless, and then the guards carried his unconscious body into a solitary cell. All those in A Block were certain Drewer was dead. Lamery was next. As he was escorted out, prisoners began throwing various things at CO's. One prisoner, Ortiz, threw a soup can, which struck the side of a CO's head. Ortiz was given keep lock, and the night passed in extreme tension. When asked to keep guards past their shifts to ensure order in the facility, a prison official exclaimed, quote, Who the hell is going to pay for all that? Unquote. Come the morning of the 9th, A Block was practically pulsing with anger. When the men were let out for breakfast, Ortiz was sprung from his cell. When this was discovered, the decision was made to put the whole section of men on lockdown. They would do this by cornering and restricting prisoners from entering A Block, holding them in a central corridor known as Times Square. This was the major causeway between the yards and the adjoining cell blocks. There was no communication between the COs who were escorting these prisoners and the officials who decided to lock these same men down. Upon arriving at the gate, prisoners quickly realized they were being cornered by prison officials. Locked inside Times Square, the prisoners began to panic and attack the guards that were immediately around them. C.O. Quinn was the sole guard responsible for the causeway. He watched bewildered as prisoners attempted to break the door down. He attempted to call ahead, but Attica's phone system was archaic beyond belief. One could only make a single phone call at a time. Additionally, there was no emergency plan in place in the event of a riot. It had never happened before, so why would it happen now? C.O. Quinn was in an impossible position. He opened the gate to Times Square to extricate his fellow guards, who were being beaten by the angry prisoners. Quinn then watched helplessly as prisoners forced the door, using piping from the prison's water system. Quinn surrendered to the prisoners, but not before being struck by a large stick that severely damaged his forehead. Throughout the prison, the riot was spreading and prisoners went about finding guards to capture. In the metal shop, CO Mike Smith watched in disbelief as men with baseball bats wearing football helmets stormed in. He could have been seriously hurt, but prisoner Don Noble stepped in and took him as his prisoner. Throughout the rioting, COs were saved by the prisoners. G.B. Smith was saved from probable assault when prisoners stepped in and said he was a, quote, good guy, unquote. Prisoner Richard X. Clark realized C.O. Quinn was in serious need of medical attention. He had been unconscious since the initial attack and was bleeding profusely from his head and mouth. Clark set up a team of fellow Muslims to carry Quinn's body on a mattress and deliver it to authorities outside the yard. They staggered through mud, blood, and water to deliver his body safely to the law enforcement officials who proceeded to leave C.O. Quinn's body unattended for hours. The only sign the townspeople of Attica had that anything was amiss was the sound of the alarm, which often went off if a prisoner on work detail had escaped. Usually these prisoners had been found relatively quickly, having few places to which they could turn. The fact that the alarm was still ringing and had been ringing all morning was deeply unsettling to the small, conservative town. The authorities provided little information to the people intentionally. They believed they could put down the riot before it escalated into an occupation. They accomplished this and managed to recapture most of the prison with no serious injuries. However, D-Yard was still under prisoner control. Over 1,200 prisoners were congregated there. Out of the first chaotic hours came an incredible amount of order amongst the prisoners. By nighttime, the men were highly organized. Initial leadership was given to men like Carlos Rock, 
Roger Champin, and Richard X. Clark. Additionally, all efforts were made to protect the COs, who were now the prisoners' hostages, from further punishment. The black Muslim population took the lead on this, forming a human circle around the men, who they put in their care. L.D. Barclay found himself as the mouthpiece for the movement. He pleaded for order and solidarity between the varying political and racial divides in the yard. Big Black Smith was placed in charge of the security detail. He was apolitical, non-religious, and six foot six, making him the perfect candidate. Tiny Swift was placed in charge of medical care in the yard. He went about distributing painkillers and dressing wounds. Elections were held shortly after, and inmates from across the various cell blocks chose leaders. Every group was represented, and the first calls for outside media and sympathetic observers were made. That night, the first outside doctor was allowed in Attica's D-yard. He was beyond impressed with the humanity and dignity the prisoners showed their hostages. Tiny Swift proved to be a diligent caretaker, and the doctor on hand even provided him with extra medical training to help his fellow prisoners once he departed. The prisoners spent the night staring up at the stars. For a prisoner by the nickname of Owl, it was the first time he had seen the stars in 22 years. The first two observers on the scene were State Assemblyman Arthur Eve and lawyer Herman Schwartz. One of their first tasks was to acquire a signed document from a federal judge granting amnesty for any crimes committed by the prisoners during the initial uprising. Getting such a document signed, Schwartz was confident he could find a peaceful solution to the uprising. However, when he arrived in D-Yard with the signed document, the men tore it up in front of his face. They claimed the document was useless without an official seal. Oswald started to seriously consider taking the prison by force at this moment. But his hands were tied. He'd already committed to trying to reach a diplomatic solution. By the night of the 10th, 33 observers were collected from across the nation, ranging from moderate conservatives to hardcore socialists. These observers were soon in the yard, and many were still unclear as to what their role would be. Were they there to negotiate on behalf of the state, or the men rebelling? Tension was palpable as the national figures entered D-Yard. They talked with prisoners and tried to create a comprehensive list of feasible demands. These talks stalled, in part because observers were still waiting for several major players to arrive. The prisoners' main concern was how their fellow men were being treated in the portion of Attica which was still under state control. The prisoners here were being ruthlessly abused. Every day there were new beatings and attacks, seemingly at random. One prisoner snuck a note to an observer that said, quote, Brothers, please don't give up. This is new for them, and they don't know how to react. We are okay. Hold on as long as you can. Big Black... Brother Herb, Brother Richie, Carlos, and all of you, right on, unquote. The arrival of the media and the first observers drastically affected the outcome of the Attica prison uprising. For the first time, people could really see what the inside of a prison uprising was like. Officials were incensed they weren't given the go-ahead to take D-Yard sooner. They felt they had the resources to quell the uprising right away. Oswald put his belief in resolving the crisis without violence. This perturbed Nelson D. Rockefeller. He refused to believe the prisoners had serious grievances. Instead, he blamed radical leftists. With Attica's uprising, state institutions quickly went about spreading misinformation about the prisoners and their actions. The FBI claimed C.O. Quinn, for example, was castrated and thrown from a second-story window. These lies were deliberately spread in an effort to sow dissent among sympathetic circles. These lies, as well as political murder and espionage, were all a part of a counterintelligence program instituted by the FBI known as Co-Intel Pro. 
as the initial observers toured the state-controlled area of the prison, another two observers arrived. They were Puerto Rican activist Tom Soto and radical lawyer William Kunzler. Kunzler was a civil rights lawyer who fought with distinction in the Pacific during World War II. Soto was a leading member of YOF, or the Youth Against War and Fascism. It was 11.30 on Friday night when these two personalities arrived in the yard. Their arrival gave the prisoners a much-needed injection of energy. Tom Soto's first act was to grab the microphone and scream, Power to the people! whilst giving an anti-fascist salute. Next was Kunzler, who was greeted with raucous applause. He said, quote, Palante, power to the people. Many of us understand what a shitty, decrepit system we have here in New York. We are your brothers, unquote. In the jubilation that followed this speech, Kunzler was asked to represent D-Yard as their lawyer. He emphatically accepted the prisoners and the observers spent hours hashing out clauses and the points by which they intended to stick. To them, the most important thing was amnesty for the men in D-Yard. As the sun rose on September 11th, the observers returned to their hotel rooms to get some small amount of sleep. They had spoken and debated through the night with the prisoners. They believed that a court order granting amnesty would be sufficient to guarantee the prisoners' safety. The state was under no such illusions. They were constantly bringing in troops and armaments from all over New York State, as they awaited a helicopter equipped with CS gas. Big Black Smith was apprehensive, to say the least, about the prisoners' chances. He did not believe the state would let his fellow prisoners escape unscathed. His first thoughts were of a hostage CO, who had participated in a money-making scheme with Big Black. He quietly suggested that the guard feign a heart attack. The guard did, and Big Black managed to secure the release of his friend. Meanwhile, the observers were pleading desperately with attorney Louis James to sign an amnesty order for the men in D-Yard. He refused to sanction any such thing. Instead, he promised not to allow any state reprisals. This was little more than window dressing, and many observers considered it useless when applied to angry shotgun-armed state police. After a very lengthy debate, which took up most of the day, the observers finally decided to enter D-Yard. They were equipped with the prisoners' demands and news that Bobby Seal would soon arrive. Bobby Seal was the second-in-command of the Black Panther Party. His presence would be a serious boon toward the observers, finding common ground with the prisoners. He arrived in Attica at 4.53 p.m. At 5 p.m., C.O. Quinn succumbed to his head injuries. His death showed that amnesty was now necessary, as the murder of a C.O. carried a death sentence with it. As Bobby Seal meandered through D-Yard, his lukewarm attitude toward the prisoners led to an anticlimactic meeting. He claimed he could not endorse an official position without first discussing it with Black Panther Central Command. After a short speech, Bobby Seal left the yard. His presence deflated the men there, but inflamed state police, who hated everything for which Bobby stood. Left in the yard were the few observers who were unafraid to stay. They implored the men in D-Yard to accept the 28-point proposal they prepared, even though this did not include a general amnesty. When it was accidentally revealed C.O. Quinn had died, a feeling of despair gripped the entire yard. In response to the news, Richard Clark tore up the document in front of the observers. There would be no compromise. Without amnesty, they were all dead anyway. Around Attica, a virtual tent city sprang up, consisting of media vans, concerned townspeople, and a forever increasing contingent of state troopers. After these several days of rebellion, very little information was made available to the families of the hostages and the prisoners. It was clear that diplomatic channels were breaking down, and every day the police became more fed up with the state of affairs. 
Kunstler made a last-ditch effort to secure passage to Algeria for the men in the yard. This failed, and it only served to further inflame the state. The police now believed they were dealing with little more than communists and enemy combatants. The circus of misinformation was spreading without end. Seal did return, but his response from party leadership was completely lackluster. They did not state their feelings one way or the other. They felt that the prisoners must decide for themselves what to do. This was a serious blow to the morale of the men in D-Yard. Hate for the prisoners spread quickly through the state police force, with the news of one of their own having been murdered by prisoners. They believed the platform, which the prisoners used during speeches, was actually a sacrificial altar. Riflemen prowled the walkways, muttering epithets and vowing revenge on the quote-unquote animals below. The line was drawn. There was little left to negotiate. The observers felt only one man could prevent the impending massacre. They desperately attempted to contact Nelson Rockefeller. They wanted him to arrive at Attica personally and speak to the men in D-Yard. Unfortunately, Nelson Rockefeller gave no heed to the warnings of the observers, and he refused to go to Attica. He had made up his mind long ago. To him, the prisoners were simply radicals who wanted to make the United States look weak. Nelson made it clear that the prison would be stormed by force unless the 28 points upon which they previously agreed were accepted and hostages were released immediately. At 3.45 p.m., the last observers and a media team were begrudgingly allowed into D-Yard. They went among the hostages and prisoners, interviewing several of them. Captain Wald said, quote, We've had nothing but fine treatment. This is both medically, food, and we're living as good as the rest of the people in the yard, if not a little better, unquote. Frank Strollo, whose brother was one of the officers just outside D-Yard, said, quote, we all have been treated 100%. Been fed well, gave us blankets, slept on mattresses while they slept on the ground. Medication was given to us when they didn't get any. The governor should give them complete amnesty. The 38 of us, we all agree. We'd give them complete amnesty. Unquote. Edward Cunningham was a well-known authoritarian who was famous for giving out 14-day keep locks. Even he said... The governor must give them clemency. I mean, this is cut and dry. This is all there is to it. This is not a joke, unquote. Mike Smith said the governor should, quote, get his ass here now. We're not scared of any of you people. He's talking about the prisoners. We know it's not you. It's the people outside, unquote. Reporters then turned to a young prisoner, Blaise Montgomery, who said, quote, I want everyone to know we're going to stick together, we're going to get what we want, or we're going to die together, unquote. In the speeches and interviews that followed during the afternoon, sense of hopelessness was at the forefront of most. There was no way prisoners could accept the proposals made without amnesty. Perhaps this was the state's plan all along. By 6 p.m., the time for talking had ended in a whimper. As he headed toward the aptly named No Man's Land, which separated D-Yard from the state-controlled portion of the prison, Big Blacksmith firmly grasped Tom Wicker's hand. As the New York Times writer meekly said, Good luck. Good luck, brother. Unquote. Wicker took it into his own hands to climb a car and deliver an impromptu speech to the cameras and the townspeople. It was his last desperate attempt to get Nelson Rockefeller to Attica. The conservative townspeople lashed out at the New York Times writer as they cried out angry vitriol against the observers and prisoners alike. Oswald had completely lost control of the situation. He stared forlornly at a wall and muttered, quote, I've given everything, unquote. Talking was done. Preparations were done. It was time to take back to prison. It was decided that New York state troopers would lead the ground assault. This was a serious break in state protocol, 
as the National Guard on hand had a plan for such an assault which would result in minimal casualties. This was disregarded. New York State felt they should take the lead in recapturing their facility. This decision was made exclusively by Nelson D. Rockefeller. The plan was exceedingly simple. They would incapacitate the prisoners on the ground with CS gas, which would be dropped from helicopters, then clear the catwalks of any threats, then storm the prison yard with a ground assault. There wasn't any command structure, nor a signal to stop shooting. It was up to the individual riflemen. Serial numbers for weapons were intentionally not tracked. This allowed the officers to operate without any repercussions for their actions. The loadout of the officers was meant to devastate and kill. They brought in hundreds of rifles from across the state. Many of the officers had never been trained in how to use them. These rifles used unjacketed bullets, which violated the Geneva Conventions because of the damage they do to human flesh. They brought in many more shotguns. The guns were filled with buckshot, which would expand when fired, causing devastation to a large area. Many more personal sidearms were brought in. There were 357 revolvers, as well as 44 and 45 Magnum revolvers. Oswald made a final appeal to the prisoners to surrender. The prisoners, however, voted overwhelmingly to not give in to state demands. They had no idea how ready the state army, assembled just outside, was to kill. The assault was planned for 10 a.m. Realizing things were reaching a crisis point, the men in D-Yard decided that eight random hostages should be brought to the catwalk in order to show the state they were still under prisoner protection. Still together were CO Mike Smith and prisoner Don Noble. They shared a tearful goodbye to one another on the catwalk. Mike gave Don a letter he had concealed in his wallet, which was directed to his family. Don said he would do all he could to get his family the letter. It was then that they heard the unmistakable sound of helicopter blades whirring. In a final desperate move, a hostage had his neck nicked by a prisoner barely puncturing the skin. This tactic failed to deter the state. They were dead set to kill. When the helicopter was first sighted, the prisoners had various reactions. Some believed this was Nelson Rockefeller finally arrived. Some believed this was just a show of force by the state. Many believed this was the start of the planned assault. The braver among them attempted to arm themselves with anything they could find. The rest dove for any cover available. A second helicopter was spotted just behind the first. It began to release a fine powder into the yard. This powder was CS gas, which Heather Ann Thompson says is, quote, a thick powdery substance that quickly enveloped, sickened, and fell every man it touched, unquote. This powder suspended itself in the air, clogging up the lungs of anyone within the radius of the entire prison. Carlos Rock said he threw up everything he had, quote, and then I started bringing up blood, unquote. The state police very quickly had every prisoner incapacitated, but they still went ahead with their assault. Before entering, the officers removed their badges and identification emblems. Their first task was to neutralize anything on the catwalks. The hostages were directly in the line of fire when the shooting began. Bullets fell like rain onto prisoners and COs alike. The amount of fire and ricocheting bullets was staggering. Mike Smith was pulled away just in time from a fatal volley, delivered to the prisoner immediately behind him. His savior was Don Noble, but four bullets still struck Smith, piercing his abdomen. The bullets proceeded to explode on impact. One of the slugs took the base of Mike's spine with it and left a hole in his intestine the size of a, quote, grapefruit, unquote. Mike lost consciousness, 
When he came to, he was looking up into the hate-filled eyes of a state trooper who had a shotgun leveled at him. Someone shouted, quote, he's one of us, unquote. This likely saved Mike's life. But the officer then trained his shotgun on Don Noble, who lay in a pool of his own blood. Mike weakly cried out, quote, he saved my life, unquote. Noble was spared thanks to Mike Smith's intervention. The rest of the prisoners were not so lucky. Hostage, Curly Watkins, was nearly suffocated when a man who had been shot to death collapsed on top of him. He couldn't see. His eyes were blindfolded. He only heard the whizzing of bullets and the screams of dying and injured men. John Hill, a prisoner, was shot as he crouched behind a barricade built on the catwalk. He then had his skull crushed in with the butt of a rifle, causing him to fall hard onto the concrete several feet below. As this scene of devastation and carnage unfolded, a helicopter whirred overhead calling out, quote, Surrender peacefully. He will not be harmed, unquote. Jose Quinones was grabbed by a group of officers as they exploded tear gas in close proximity to his face and then beat his skull in with nightsticks. This was just the beginning of the assault. The people on the catwalk had all been neutralized. Now it was the time for the ground assault. Big Black Smith compared this scene to a war zone. The officers came in firing with reckless abandon. Wounded piled up in droves. Men described being unable to breathe under the masses of human bodies, consisting of terrified, bullet-ridden men. This began the true torture for the prisoners. Men had shotguns shoved into their mouths and their necks stomped on. One wounded prisoner was asked to keep his hands up and leave the hole he was hiding in. As he went to do this, an officer ruthlessly murdered him. In another hole, many wounded men had congregated. An officer leveled his rifle at this group and fired randomly into the mass. Chris Reed was half alive, shot four times. He listened in horror as he heard troopers debating whether to kill him or wait until he bleeds out. He came to in a pile of dead people. William Maynard was carrying the severely wounded Jomo on his shoulders when another officer shot Maynard, then reloaded and shot Jomo a further six times before kicking Maynard hard in the face and declaring, quote, both the blacks were dead, unquote. The hostages didn't fare much better. They were often abused by fellow troopers until the truth was discovered. The prisoners did everything they could to protect the hostages. Herb Blyden instructed ten of his followers to make sure, quote, not to let harm come to them, unquote. This the men did, until the last. Akil Aljundi was shot through the hand. The wound left a hole he could see through. The hostages were nearly killed by troopers who had their blood lust up but they quickly realized who they were directing their anger towards. In half an hour, nine hostages were dead, killed by trooper bullets. At least 29 prisoners were dead. Of the dead, C.O. Cunningham, who was a father of eight, had his skull destroyed by buckshot. C.O. D'Arcangelo, who was the father to a newborn, was killed by a 270 bullet. C.O. Valoni, was a father of four. He was shot several times all over his body. C.O. Lewis was shot in the back. The bullet traveled through his chest and, quote, destroyed his aorta, unquote. Among the prisoners, William Allen's body was pot-marked with double-O pellets. Melvin Ware was killed when an officer fired multiple rounds from a Deerslayer 12-gauge shotgun. Lorenzo McNeil was shot in the back of the head on the catwalk. Kenneth Malloy's body was completely annihilated. He was, quote, shot 12 times at close range, pumped full of bullets from both a 357 and a 38 caliber weapon, unquote. Heather Ann Thompson goes on to say, quote, 
Malloy was shot with such vicious abandon that his eyes were ripped apart from the shards of bone splintering in his head, unquote. The troopers then made sure to do a final cleanup of any who got away. Sam Melville was supposedly murdered after he tried to surrender to police. A shotgun shell tore open his chest and destroyed his left lung. Thomas Hicks was singled out by officers, and while he kneeled down and surrendered, he was supposedly shot by officers before they abused his lifeless body and shot him again. L.D. Barkley was supposedly killed when a point-blank round from a two seventy rifle pierced his lungs. He was only 21 years old. In their initial reports to their respective bosses, the state detailed the massacre as, quote, magnificent, unquote. The officers, they claimed, had acted above reproach. Oswald was the only one who seemed to understand the gravity of what had just happened. To any who would listen, he would say, quote, I think I have some feeling of how Truman must have felt when he decided to drop the A-bomb, unquote. In spite of Oswald's macabre comments, the state did everything in their power to justify their horrific actions to the public and to the media. The PR director of the Department of Corrections, Gerald Houlihan, claimed the uprising at Attica was a threat to, quote, free society, unquote. Later that same day, he went on to claim that the hostages were all killed after they had their throats slit by prisoners. Walter Dunbar doubled down on this lie. He claimed to have watched hostages being disemboweled and castrated before his very eyes. Quote, we saw it. We have it on film. Unquote. He protested, like a child, to all the media present. This snowballed into claims that many of the hostages had been, quote, dead a long time, unquote. There was no end to the lies and gaslighting in which the state participated in. The media fell in line with the state's narrative. The New York Times, the Daily News, the Washington Post all reported this false narrative without batting an eye. Public vitriol then spread to the observers, while in Attica, they faced massive outrage from the townspeople. Now, this was amplified to a national level. A husband and wife wrote into their local paper saying it was, quote, too bad Wicker and Kunstler got out alive, unquote. Several organizations and individuals called for calm and consideration of the facts that weren't yet available. Herman Badillo, member of the Observer Committee, was incredulous at the lies being told about the uprising. However, the president, the governor, and the corrections department were all conspiring to preserve the lie. They had their narrative. Rockefeller told Nixon, quote, The whole thing was led by the blacks. Unquote. It was now the turn of the families to experience unimaginable grief. They received very little information about their loved ones. The families of hostages were reliant exclusively on hearsay and rumor. Anne Valone was told that her husband was at a local hospital, alive and well. When she arrived, the doctor told her the awful news. She cried out bitterly, quote, No, he's dead? Unquote. Her children were furious with her after she delivered the news. Her daughter refused to believe her, saying over and over again, quote, My dad is alive. Unquote. For the families of the prisoners... News was not only scant, it was held back by prison officials. Ella Greer was cursed out by dispatchers when she tried to find out information about her family in Attica. Back in D-Yard, the prisoners were being beaten, quote, unmercifully, unquote, says Monroe County Sheriff Frank Hall. Another member of law enforcement compared the carnage to, quote, wartime conditions in the Guadalcanal, unquote. As the shooting finally stopped, the only medical caretakers on hand were the two woeful doctors employed by Attica. People suffered from gunshot wounds in the direct sun until a local doctor finally arrived on the scene. When he did, he compared it to a, quote, civil war painting, unquote, 
another combat veteran of World War II declared outright, quote, he had never seen people who were so badly neglected, unquote. In spite of this obvious lack of care, by day's end, only six prisoners were allowed to be transferred to a local hospital. Officers continued to interrupt care and stand in the way of medical officials, even at the hospital. They would chain the legs of the severely wounded, claiming they were flight risks. The National Guardsmen on the scene were disgusted by the treatment of the prisoners by prison officials. In one instance, a guardsman had taken down a list of injured prisoners. A CO came up to him and ripped up the list, claiming several people on it weren't actually injured. Physical abuse toward prisoners only continued at the infirmary. One inmate had his bullet wounds poked and prodded by guards. A Spanish-speaking prisoner was cudgeled in the head when he asked if anyone could tell his family that he was alive. In one of the worst cases, a prisoner was sexually assaulted with either a broken bottle or a jagged piece of glass. Another was sexually assaulted with a screwdriver after he lay shot in a stretcher, too wounded to comply with officers' instructions. As if this abuse wasn't enough to stomach, the medical staff at Attica was beyond neglectful. After noticing a lump in a prisoner's throat, Dr. Paul Sternberger ruefully commented, quote, Ha ha, you swallowed your teeth, unquote. Dr. Selden Williams told the prisoner, quote, I hope you all die, unquote, when he asked if he could get medication for his bullet wound. All of this hate was a direct symptom of the unjust system on which this country was built, in which race is somehow indicative of a person's worth. Additionally, the misinformation about Seal Quinn's death further fanned the flames of their misdirected hate. Everyone believed it. Even the observers supported the state's story at first. Quote-unquote retribution was meted out on the prisoners, and racism was ever-present. The white power salute was common. One trooper was heard saying to another it was, quote, hot work killing blacks, unquote. White prisoners were called, quote, black lovers, unquote, while they were being beaten. No one was spared from the troopers' anger. Dentures were crushed into the mud. Eyeglasses were twisted and mangled. And necklaces and watches were destroyed, and in some cases even stolen by state troopers. As the shooting stopped, a literal gauntlet began. Prisoners were hustled into a yard. The prisoners were then forced to strip naked and crawl on all fours. The bits of glass and debris which littered the ground badly cut up the prisoners' feet. In spite of this, they were then forced to run 50 yards back to their cells. Standing in their way were guards armed with batons, 2 by 4 and baseball bats. This was all designed to unleash as much punishment on the prisoners as possible. The leaders who had been in charge of the uprising were quickly discovered, and they were individually tortured by COs and troopers. After five hours of this specialized torture, Big Black was the last prisoner in the yard. He was forced to run the gauntlet alone, facing all the other guards combined. Big Black's skull was split by a CO and he staggered half-conscious to the end. He was then dragged to a separate room, where prison guards played shotgun roulette with the petrified man. As night fell on the prison, many prisoners believed they had staggered into some sort of relief. However, even in the dead of night, prison guard vengeance knew no limit. They broke teeth, played with life, and humiliated the wounded men in their care. One favorite practice of the COs was to make thirsty prisoners drink their urine. Under an inscription in D-Yard, which commemorated the uprising, the guards made a point to leave their own mark. It said, quote, Retaken, 9, 13, 71, 31, dead blacks. Unquote. Even as the state celebrated the supreme triumph of force over unarmed prisoners, people were gathering to challenge the state's narrative. Those who would come to question the state would be from all walks of life, but focused on only one thing, the truth. 
they would end up working together to expose the state of New York and all the authoritarians who chose a massacre over a parlay. In the face of the truth, the state would double down and, for decades, continue to support the narrative it had fabricated. In the next episode of Turning Tides, we will discuss how the state did this, how their lies were exposed, how minimal justice was meted out, and how their lies caused severe, permanent damage, lasting up through today. I'm your host, Joseph Pascone. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for the conclusion of the series, Attica Penitentiary, cover-up. If you like what you heard today, you can support us by donating on PayPal at Turning Tides Podcast One. Thanks for the support and thank you for listening.